The real problem with calling something a person is that once you start, it's very difficult to stop. The circle of personhood expands like wildfire until electrons themselves are tiny little glittering persons. When that happens, the only option left is to embrace the void. The universe is a cruel, uncaring void. The key to being happy isn't to search for meaning. It's to just keep yourself busy with unimportant nonsense. And eventually, you'll be dead. Stop fighting it. You're going to be okay. Face the void. Call it a one-way vacation to the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. episode 163 of Embrace the Void, where everybody belongs to everybody. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are talking animal consciousness. So, with no further warning, let's release the hoons. All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is Jeff Sebo director of the NYU Animal Studies MA program and author of Chimpanzee Rights and Food, Animals, and the Environment. Jeff, would you like to say hi to the void? Hi, void. Hi, Aaron. Thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. We, uh, You're one of the many individuals who I've luckily met via the Twitters, um, and we discovered that we had some common interests in the uh, ethics and philosophy of mind world, so I'm excited to chat about several of your papers, actually. Yeah, thanks for asking me on, and thanks for doing this podcast. I discovered it a month or so ago, and I've loved listening back through all the old episodes. Uh, really, really, these conversations are terrific. Okay, thank you. I appreciate it. It's, you know, I'm just here asking questions and then people say lots of interesting things and that's the fun part. So let's talk about you a little bit. What is your sort of, how do you self-identify, as I like to say, in the great compass meme of life, (laughs) if you wanted to convey to yourself? (laughs) Yeah, so as you said, I teach uh, animal studies and environmental studies at NYU and I direct the animal studies ME program at NYU. And I also do bioethics and medical ethics and philosophy here. My PhD is in philosophy. I was trained in moral and political philosophy and some connected issues like moral psychology and metaethics. Mm-hmm. And now I work on animal ethics and environmental ethics and animal minds. And so I do research and teaching, for example, about our relationships with and treatment of non-human animals and the ethics of our treatment of animals in food and research and companion animals and wild animals. And I also do some work with some nonprofit organizations uh, that work on animal advocacy and animal studies. Mm -hmm. And I assume you're mostly a pro-animal, animal rights individual. (laughs) Yeah, I'm generally in support of treating the animals well. (laughs) Right. Was there a specific like problem or thing that sucked you into ethics in particular in the world of philosophy? I was really excited by the ethics classes that I took in college. I I took a philosophy 101 class that had some ethics units and then an applied ethics class. And and that covered all of the basic things like abortion and euthanasia and eating meat and those sorts of things. And I was genuinely like really excited about all of that material. So I think I think it was sort of ethics 101 that got me interested in ethics. But I I definitely Mm -hmm. was persuaded to care more about animals and about the environment, but especially about animals through those classes and those arguments. And so that made me think that philosophy can be a powerful thing. It can actually make you change your mind about some things and change your behavior too. As someone who deeply loves teaching intro ethics to people who will not often take any other philosophy classes, I, I'm very happy to hear that that, w- that actually did work on you properly and you yeah, got sucked every in now as a result. And, then. and, mm-hmm. and I have that experience as a teacher too. I mean, my, my students are, are fantastic, but I regularly experience my students having open minds and wanting to challenge mm-hmm. themselves and wanting to bring their actions more in alignment with their beliefs and values and seeing that happen and seeing people be prepared to actually change the way they behave in some important way because of what we talked about in the classroom is really inspiring. Yeah. And since you mentioned your students and substantial changes to our behavior, I'm curious, what is your sort of teaching situation like right now? And how are you and your students coping? Yeah. Yeah. This is obviously a tough time. So fortunately, 
we had a lot of freedom to come up with our own policies around uh, COVID-19 in the fall semester. So as soon as we were able to, we decided to bring the MA program that I direct entirely online. And so all of our classes mm -hmm. and events are online this semester. And a couple okay. of students reasonably decided to defer or take a break, but for the most part, students stayed enrolled. And so we are now in, I guess, week three or so of the semester. And honestly, our classes and events have been really fantastic so far. I guess mm -hmm. I'm lucky because my teaching style and, and the types of classes that I teach translate really well to the Zoom format. So I already never have, have tests or quizzes or anything like that. And all we do is mm -hmm. have wide ranging discussions and that is pretty easy to do on Zoom. So, so things have been going pretty well so far, relatively speaking. That's good. I'm glad to hear that you all have that kind of uh, backup admin wise for flexibility yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah, at least for now, see how the spring goes, but hopefully we have that kind of freedom then too. Yes, that is going to certainly be interesting. So what is your, I'm curious, as I was looking through your papers, I felt like I was experiencing a sort of wide range of perspectives. And I'm curious how you would describe your approach to animal ethics, broadly speaking. Do you like adopt a rights-based approach, a utilitarian approach, a care ethics approach, or is it a, is it a some sort of pluralistic blend of these things? Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that that was your experience looking over my papers. In, in practice, my approach is definitely pluralistic. I basically think that we morally ought to do the most good possible, though we also ought to have a very strong presumption in favor of respecting rights and cultivating virtues and cultivating relationships of care along the way. So I, I definitely have a kind of pluralistic combination of consequentialist and different kinds of non-consequentialist rights, theoretic, virtue theoretic, care theoretic views in mm -hmm. practice. For me, the theoretical foundation of that is utilitarianism, the principle of utility. And then the theoretical foundation for that is a kind of Kantian or Humean constructivism, a meta-ethical anti-realism. But part of what I try to emphasize in my work is that in general, but then also especially in the Anthropocene, when human activity is impacting the lives of billions, if not trillions or quadrillions of human and non-human animals, these different theoretical frameworks end up converging to a significant degree in practice. Mm -hmm. So I think that both consequentialist and non-consequentialist theoretical frameworks end up needing to accept this kind of pluralistic view in practice. So you would avoid the problem that pluralism faces potentially where it kind of might collapse into a mush that doesn't give a clear answer by saying that a lot of these things mostly just point towards the same clear answers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, theoretically, I, I do avoid that problem entirely because theoretically, the foundation of my pluralistic view is mm -hmm. uh, a, a single general principle uh -huh. of morality, the principle of utility, which itself has further foundations. So so ultimately, an action is right if and only if or to the degree that that action maximizes pleasure and minimizes pain for all sentient beings from now until the end of time. But mm -hmm. in practice and epistemically, it might not always be so clear to adjudicate these things. So, so in practice, when like going about my everyday life, it might not always be clear to me in what moments I should be thinking like a consequentialist and thinking like a rights or virtue or care theorist and in what mm -hmm. moments I should be sacrificing the few for the sake of the many and so on and so forth. So, so I think that that messiness remains in practice and there might be no way around mm -hmm. that. But yeah, no, theoretically I have simplicity and power and comparability and all of those nice things. Yes, I think I definitely agree with you about, I think that makes a lot of sense when you describe the sort of continued messiness that is my experience as well. And I noted, uh, we, I didn't prep you to talk about meta ethics, but you did of course just bait me by commenting <laughs> that you are uh, an anti-realist. So I'm just curious what, what motivates you to fall to the anti-realist side of the meta-ethical world? Oh, all, all sorts of things. I, I think that, well, I, I guess I, I feel a little bit drawn towards a certain kind of pluralism in meta-ethics too, but, mm -hmm. but I always mm -hmm. identified, I think, most with a sort of Sharon Street style Humean constructivism. Basically, I think that there are metaphysical and epistemological and language and motivational problems with, with the idea of natural or non-natural moral facts or, or properties on a realist construal. I think that very likely those properties do not exist. Even if they did exist, we very likely would be unable to know anything about them. And even if they existed and we knew something about them, 
I highly doubt that when we argue about morality in everyday life, what we are doing is expressing <laughs> our theories about what those moral facts hanging out somewhere in the universe are instructing us to do. And, and even if we decided we were talking about that, I doubt we would care much what, <laughs> what the answer to that question was. So, so I think that mm -hmm. when we are talking about morality, we are really trying to make sense of who we are, what we most deeply believe in value, and how we can live our lives so that we can bring our actions into alignment with our most deeply held beliefs and values, which is roughly how I understand constructivism on the sort of Sharon Street style Humean constructivist view. That was very well put. You and I are mortal enemies, meta-ethically speaking, but I respect the clarity <laughs> I, I would, with which you love... describe that. <laughs> well, like yeah. I said, I, I do I do tend towards a, a certain kind of pluralism here too, because I think that unplausible mm -hmm. versions of realism and anti-realism, as with plausible versions of consequentialism and non-consequentialism, they end up sharing a lot more in common mm -hmm. than you might have initially thought. Like realism will normally bring some kind of mind dependence into the picture in order to make sense of our moral experience. Mm -hmm. And anti-realism will, will usually have some kind of thin value that all rational agents necessarily have to hold, or at least that all real agents do in fact hold. And, and so I think probably we mm -hmm. can find, if not exact common ground, then, then something in the ballpark of common ground. But I could be totally wrong about that. Yeah, no, I think there's a, there's a good point that, like, Keith Frankish makes about realism, where, like, weak illusionism and weak realism are kind of just the same thing or very exactly. similar. Yeah. And so, like, I, I do yeah. think there can be a blending together in those in those spaces. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I think it, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. And, and one, one other quick thing on that. I, I mm -hmm. have no idea if this is if this is correct or not, but but I've always suspected that when it comes to the question how we use moral language there a, a pluralist view might might genuinely be the right one i i suspect that when we use normative language mm -hmm. we might sometimes be taking ourselves to talk about our own beliefs and values or other people's beliefs and values or our shared social beliefs and values or something more external i i think there might not be any universal fact of the matter about how people are using moral language and so i think hmm. with respect mm -hmm. to that question there there might genuinely be a strong case for realism at least in some conversational contexts yeah i think that's plausible um ultimately at the end of the day as long as i i think that we can secure some sort of robust objective moral claims um i'm happy and we can debate how we secure those things and i think you're right that like Agreed, yeah. down, downstream of this bottleneck you and i probably agree on a vast number of things that we can talk about here with the uh on the animal side of things but that is yeah. it's, i mean it's always amusing that like this you can have these very deep d divides on a like meta ethical level and then converge like 99% when it comes to the normative questions yep yeah and 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 you can forget that because of how fun it is to debate mm -hmm. the theoretical foundations and how easy it is to sort mm -hmm. of see family resemblances between theoretical and practical views like in the animal advocacy world for mm -hmm. example so many people think that if you are a utilitarian you must be like a welfareist and a reformist and if you are a rights theorist then you must be an abolitionist and mm -hmm. you know a revolutionary because they they think these practical commitments come directly from the the theoretical foundations and i think you know morality is like science there are so many different levels and and so many points <laughs> where these things might come apart or or where they might converge yeah, I, I I don't totally agree that morality is like, but maybe like science in the way in the way you're describing though. Um, so let's talk about your papers here a little bit, actually. Sure, um, sure, sure. Yeah. So. Several of the things that you had written piqued my interest, but I think as an appetizer of sorts, we can talk about <laughs> your paper on bivalves, uh, uh -huh. which is called Bivalves or Better with uh, Jennifer um, Jaquette and Max Elder, it looks like. Mm -hmm. So is my takeaway sort of from a quick read of this that um, it's totally fine for me to just eat bivalves <laughs> instead of other kinds of meat? Yeah, are there any com catches? Completely <laughs> unproblematic. No, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I do think there are catches. So, so we, we, called the the paper bivalves are better as opposed to bivalves are good and you should eat bivalves so i do think that farming and eating bivalves is better than farming and eating most if not all other types of animal and mm. you can probably guess the reasons why bivalves have extremely simple nervous systems and maybe are relatively unlikely to feel pain and even if they do feel pain are 
less likely than other animals to be harmed in captivity or be harmed at least substantially by by premature death and also by valve farming is less bad for public health and the environment it has fewer of those negative side effects that other types of animal farming uh, have with that said i do think that there are at least some moral questions about eating bivalves so they might feel pain and and we might talk a little bit more about the significance mm -hmm. of that later in this conversation but they might feel pain and insofar as they might feel pain we might have reason to err on the side of treating them as though they do feel pain and if we have another option that is equal in all respects except the individual in question does not presumably feel pain then maybe we should uh, eat that other type of food instead mm -hmm. and also there are some indirect effects to still wonder about. So even if bivalve farming is better from a public health and environmental perspective than other types of animal agriculture, and maybe even better in those respects than some types of plant agriculture, we still might wonder about the social and psychological effects of eating an individual whom we classify as an animal. So mm -hmm. will, will that, for example, cause us to see animals as a more general category, as lesser than is here, for our consumption, exploitation, and will that lead us to, to harm other animals by, for example, farming them and eating them? I, I know that in my own experience, when I have attempted to be mostly vegan, but then make certain principled exceptions at, at certain points, that did make it a little bit harder for me to maintain that mm. habit in, a, in an easy way. And, and so I just decided at some point to stop making principled exceptions because that made it easier psychologically and socially to, to most of the time do what I think that I morally ought to do. Mm. And so you just started eating whatever you want again? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, no, I mean, I, I did in those moments when I made principled exceptions, like when I when mm -hmm. I ate a piece of dairy or, or meat because it was like dumpster diving or roadkill or something like that, um, mm -hmm. I, I, I thought it was morally acceptable uh, with respect to the interests of that animal. I mean, even that can be debated. Mm -hmm. But for the next week after I, I ate that piece of meat, because I, you know, it was from dumpster diving or roadkill, I did find myself kind of looking at that side of the menu again and having to remind myself of the reasons to not order those things on the menu. Mm -hmm. And and that sort of reinforced how how fragile these, these habits can be and these sort of uh, conceptions of animals as like, friends instead of food can be and and so i've yeah. sort of erred on the side of doing things that reinforce my conception of animals as friends instead of food i'm, I'm curious and this will get at it i guess a question we'll be at, talking about here in a second about you know how what we can know about conscious or sentient entities right do you have a sense of like how far how how wide the the realm of like bivalve adjacent entities is that are like for lobsters for example is a lobster right. like essentially close enough to a bug that like we can't really think of it as being we don't need to think of it necessarily as being sentient is it closer to a bivalve or like where do we cut the line there yeah that's a good question i am highly uncertain of this as i think we all should be mm -hmm. i actually do think that bugs are reasonably likely to be sentient by which i mm -hmm. mean I, you know, I, I think naming a credence is, is, is dangerous in this kind of situation mm -hmm. where we have so much ignorance, but, but I, I would, if I had to put my credence about, for example, insects at something closer to say 20%, which I think is well above any threshold where, where we should err on the side of caution or treat them as at least minimally sentient when in doubt. Um, and, and, and so I do think that there are a lot of animals like that. Now, when it comes to, for example, sponges, who I think have zero neurons, hmm. maybe then we can, we can relatively really edible, confidently, though, <laughs> no, that that's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. When it comes to, honestly, when it comes to the animals who, who humans eat, I, I think all of them have, have a reasonably strong case for, for being sentient. And, and so it at least you know, raises moral questions about whether we should be treating them the way that we are. Yeah, that's interesting. And like insects are another one on the list of like, I think what people think of as sometimes being both moral and environmentally uh, conscious alternatives. 
So, right. you know, let's talk about two others. Let's just throw in the mix here, right? Sure. We have also plant-based alternatives, right? Fake meat in that sense. Yeah. And then like yeah. cultured meat where you're growing the meat in a lab. And I'm curious, right. how do those compare in your mind to like bivalves or uh, these other kinds of alternatives? Do you see them as being in better for the environment? Do you see them as being better for human beings? What's your take on yeah. that? So, so one one thing to say, which I, I think we all know, but but is good to say out loud, is that no way of producing food is harm free. So the mm -hmm. question is not how to eliminate the harm that we cause through food production and consumption, but rather how to reduce and minimize the harm that we cause that way. And the answer to that question is is of course going to be contextual. So there might be some mm -hmm. situations where eating bivalves genuinely is the the least harmful way that you can you can nourish yourself. And there might be other situations where plant-based alternatives would be less harmful. So, so this is about harm reduction and is going to be somewhat contextual. With that mm -hmm. said, there are some general things that we can say. So one general thing we can say is that factory farming is one of the worst things that we've ever done as a species and in no context is okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and then when it comes to alternatives, I, I think non-industrial animal agriculture tends to be quite harmful as well. And so the real question is what combination of uh, ordinary plant foods and then plant-based and and possibly cell-based meat should we be consuming maybe with some some ordinary animal pro products at the margins but i would personally prefer for those to not be included in most mm. contexts at all when it comes to plant-based and cell-based meat those are from an animal welfare public health and most environmental perspectives across the board better than ordinary meat production, even non-industrial meat production. So, mm -hmm. so certainly in terms of animal welfare, there still is some harm caused to wild animals in fields. But mm -hmm. since less land use is needed to produce plant-based foods, fewer wild animals are harmed at the end of the day. And of course, no farmed animals are, are harmed in the production of, of plant-based and cell-based meat. When it comes to current methods of producing cell-based meat, which is still not on the market, at least I think not much yet, uh, people have used fetal bovine serum as as part of the production process, and that does require harming animals. Mm. Mm -hmm. So that still raises moral questions. Now, now it causes orders of magnitude less harm sure. in exchange for, for the food that you get, but it still raises moral questions. My understanding, though, is that by the time it comes to market, there will be a plant-based alternative to uh, that that animal uh, ingredient in in cell-based meat. Mm -hmm. So, really, the only asterisk is that in compared to in comparison with ordinary plant-based foods, like you know uh, pulses, like like beans and stuff, um, mm -hmm. there there is maybe a, a bigger environmental footprint. And when it comes to energy use, the, the footprint for cell-based meat might be quite high. Mm -hmm. so, so I think they should certainly be part of the transition to a better food system because it'll be helpful as a way of weaning people off of meat. Whether they should be part of an ideal future food system, I think, is a tougher question that we might not be in a position to answer yet. Right. So you have these concerns like um, how processed the plant-based meats are, how much sodium there is involved. There could be other potential health risks that we're just not seeing because they're not being consumed on a wide scale yet. And well, I was, I was thinking more just in terms of how energy intensive, how, mm -hmm. how environmentally harmful the production methods might be. It, it is much better than uh, production methods in animal agriculture, but it might not be better than simpler ways of producing plant-based foods that people could eat in a, mm -hmm. you know, rising global population at scale. Do you feel fairly confident that cultured meat grown in a lab is not sentient? <laughs> I do feel I do feel highly confident about okay. that. I we're we're gonna talk in a, a bit yeah, about I'm, I'm exactly leading it too, yeah. how much we should err on the side of caution. But I think I think that on on any view according to which fewer things than everything are sentient. <laughs> mm -hmm. Uh cell-based meat is is high, is not going to be on the list of possibly sentient things okay and let me ask you i'm just curious and then we can talk about your paper the, the moral problem of other minds do you think sure. that plants are sentient i we we might want to talk about this when we talk about that paper all right let's talk about it so what is the topic of okay, this paper? Sure, explain sure. your thesis <laughs> uh the problem of other mind the moral problem of other minds for me sure yeah so so probably most most 
listeners are familiar with the, the various problems of other minds, the basic idea is that since the only mind that we have direct first personal subjective access to is our own, then we might not be in a position to know or, or have justified beliefs about who beyond us has, has a mind. And, and certainly we might not always know whether or not another being has a mind. And so my paper, The Moral Problem of Other Minds, raises the obvious moral follow-up question, which is that if we might not always know whether someone or something has a mind, how should we treat them in that state of uncertainty or ignorance? So for mm -hmm. example, if you have a moral view according to which pain, the ability to experience pain is necessary and or sufficient for having intrinsic moral status, for mattering morally for your own sake. And if you, because of the problem of other minds, are highly uncertain whether particular beings have minds or not, can experience pain or not, how should you treat them in those circumstances? So I wrote a paper basically considering a few of, of what I take to be the main options and, and making some observations about them. And mm -hmm. so in particular, there is one option that we can get rid of initially, which is when in doubt, treat them as non-sentient. I, I think we would never accept such a view in, in cases of risk uncertainty in general, and, and so we should not accept such a view in this case. But then the other views are are really complicated to, to figure out what they imply and, and which one is best. So, so in general, in cases involving risk and uncertainty, we can either accept a precautionary principle or some kind of expected value or cost benefit principle. So on a precautionary principle, you might think, when in doubt, err on the side of caution. So, so if you are uncertain about whether someone is capable of experiencing pain, err on the side of treating them as though they do experience pain. Mm -hmm. And then on an expected value or cost benefit principle, you might say, uh, when in doubt about whether someone is capable of experiencing pain, you should multiply your credence that they can experience pain by the amount of pain that they could experience if they could experience any at all. Mm -hmm. And then you should treat the product of that equation as the amount of pain that they actually do experience for all intents and purposes, right? So, so as a simple example, if I think that a lobster is 20% likely to be able to experience pain at all, given my evidence, and mm -hmm. if I think that they would experience 100 units of pain, if they could experience any at all, if I boiled them alive, then right. on the precautionary principle, I should err on the side of thinking that they do experience pain, and I should I should assume that boiling them alive would, would cause 100 units of pain plus their death. Whereas on the cost-benefit principle, I would say, well, I, they have a 20% chance of, of experiencing 100 units of pain, so I'm going to treat them as though they would experience 20 units of pain. And then either way, the question is, are the benefits of boiling them alive worth the 100 units of pain and then their death versus the 20 units of pain and then their death? So I think mm -hmm. both of these principles have significant strengths and limitations. Generally speaking, a cost-benefit principle is good when you feel fairly confident that you have reliable information about probabilities and utilities. And a precautionary principle is good when you don't think that you have reliable information about probabilities and utilities. And if one option is clearly riskier than the other options. Mm -hmm. Without so, going... <laughs> sorry, go ahead. No, it just seems like there, there are two bad options that you just described there. It, exactly, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is part of why... I, I don't actually endorse one <laughs> or the other at, at the end of this paper. I, I think like a that, true philosopher. <laughs> yeah, I love writing papers where where I, I explore some options and then kind of throw up my hands at the end and and don't don't answer my own question. So okay, this is one of those all about <laughs> right. So this is one of those situations. But but I also think I think there are some things that can be said. One one is that as with many things, it might be at least a somewhat contextual matter which principle we should use. So for example, mm. in a case where I need to decide how to treat two beings, like like mm -hmm. I in the paper, I use an example, if a house is burning down and I can only save a lobster or a robo lobster who is in all respects identical to the bio lobster, but is a robot instead of a biological lobster. Mm -hmm. I can only save one or the other in there identical in all respects, except one is biological and one is a robot, maybe I have slightly higher credence 
that the biological robot, I sorry, the, the biological lobster is is sentient given our evolutionary continuity. And uh-huh. and so maybe in that situation, yeah. So maybe in that situation, the cost benefit principle is a nice principled way of breaking the tie. Um, maybe, but but there are some problems with that. Also. Yeah, it seems like you'd want to save the incredibly advanced technological lobster over the easily reproducible <laughs> biological lobster. For for example, yeah, that that would be that would be a non-moral status related reason for for saving the robo lobster. Anyway, that that's a highly fanciful case, but it illustrates sure. the point that it might be a contextual matter that that concerns the the practical stakes in your epistemic state, which principle Surely. makes more sense. Yeah. Right, for example, but, right, if you were trying to save an ape versus, I mean, like if you're trying to decide between um, how which principle to use for an ape versus a lobster, right? If you feel like an ape, you have a 90% chance of being confident right. that like it's sentient, then you yeah. should use the expected value, right? You don't even need the permissive one. Um, yeah, but it seems, so it although, seems like it's a question of when you switch. Right. What, what's complicated about that case and the reason why I, I constructed the case the way I did is because it was really important to hold all else equal. So for example... Um, in, a, in a case where you're comparing a chimpanzee, say, with with a lobster, even if you thought, even if if you had a, a you know credence of one that they were both sentient, you might still have all sorts of reasons to to prioritize the chimpanzee. For example, you might think mm-hmm. they have a higher capacity for well-being; they can experience more pain. Or, or uh, you might think that you have various kinds of relationships with them, or or so on and so forth. And I didn't want those confounding variables to to get in the way. So I, I think for purposes of adjudicating between these principles, when it comes to the question, how should you treat beings based on uncertainty about whether they're sentient at all, it's important to hold those other things equal. Yeah, it seems like besides just that I don't like math, the expected value one here seems particularly hard to apply when you're talking right. about sentience, which we both, I think, pretty strongly agree is not readily testable and like we don't have a clear way and like you're going to be applying it to cases where you have a a fairly mixed credence about um what the entity is and then like the alternative the permissive one is just going to apply to everything it's like not everything but like you know you're going to have a hard time holding back the pantheists at this point or the panpsychists rather (laughs) yeah yeah right yeah it's like the panpsychics yeah yeah it is it is true that if if uh on both principles actually if if you have an unrestricted version of this principle, and if you have a non-zero credence that, for example, panpsychism is true, then you're mm-hmm. going to end up assigning at least some amount of sentience to everything in the universe. So you mm-hmm. either need to be very confident that panpsychism is false, mm-hmm. or you need to have some kind of risk threshold. Like, like maybe you say, if my credence is you know, 0.05 or higher, uh, if, if I think the chances that they're sentient is 5% or higher, then I'll apply these principles. But if I th- think the chances are below 5%, then I won't. May- maybe if you have that kind of risk threshold uh, or you're mm-hmm. very confident that panpsychism is false, you won't face that, that implication. But otherwise, you do face that implication. You need to take seriously the possibility that lots of lots of things that don't appear to be sentient might be. Yeah, do you take seriously the possibility then that plants are sentient, as, as we asked before? <laughs> yeah, I I do take seriously that possibility. Maybe not enough so that they they hit the five percent threshold. So if if that is your threshold for applying these principles, then then plants and maybe you know current generation smartphones and so on might might not make the cut. Though that that could be my sort of pro animal and pro biological bias. So I don't want to trust my intuitions too much about these cases. Um, mm-hmm. but, but, but I do think that plants are much more cognitively sophisticated than people appreciate. For example, they do have the capacity for perception. They can learn and remember, they can communicate, they can make decisions and perform actions that are in their self-interest. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, so if, if they detect a toxic substance, they can grow their roots away from that substance and signal to other plants that they should do the same. And the only reason that we don't perceive that as agency is that it all happens in slow motion. Whereas mm-hmm. if it was sped up, we would sort of anthropomorphize and, and experience them as, as maybe conscious agents in the way that we do with animals or cartoons. And so, think- yeah. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, so so really the main issue with plants is is that they don't have anything like central nervous systems or brains where it all comes together. Mm-hmm. 
And, and so a lot really depends on what you think about questions like, in order to be conscious or sentient, do you need to have some kind of centralized, centrally organized cognition where it all comes together? Or is it okay for your cognition to be highly distributed? And that'll be important not only for plants, but also for other types of entities like insect colonies or certain types of AIs where there might be a high degree of cognitive sophistication, but it might also be highly distributed. Yeah, and I want to talk about the AIs in a second, but I'm real curious mm -hmm. to get your thoughts on. I used to harass uh, Bernie Rollins back in Animal Ethics with these questions about <laughs> cool. plant uh, consciousness. Bernie, yeah. I don't know if you've met him, he's a super fun guy. Yeah, um, yeah. I imagine you all have probably crossed paths at some point, but he hated these questions. And his, when you know, when I would annoy him with it, he would push back with the argument that plants are unlikely to be sentient because sentience is really only adaptive when you have a certain level of ability to interact with your environment and mm -hmm. plants don't really have enough, wouldn't get enough utility out of it for, for it to be worthwhile for them adaptively. Yeah. Yeah. That could be right. I'm, I'm, I find that really plausible to be honest. And, mm -hmm. and the only reason why I'm pushing back on my own intuitions is that I realize that that they might be biased and and that consciousness is confusing and we we don't really have the correct theory of consciousness yet and a lot really depends on what your theory of consciousness and sentience is there are some theories where consciousness requires a certain type of higher order mentality you know mental states mm -hmm. about other mental states and if you accept that kind of theory of consciousness then you might think that it evolved like re relatively late in the game, evolutionarily speaking, and that it would only have evolved in certain types of creatures. But if you accept a, a more basic theory of consciousness where it might only involve certain types of first order perceptual states mm -hmm. and, and it might be simpler in that way and it might have evolved earlier on, then it, it might be more likely to have evolved before mm -hmm. we split off from from lots of other types of living beings or or evolve separately for for different types of living beings yeah i think that makes sense so okay so you've you've brought up ai a couple of times so let's go back to our friend the robo lobster because i yeah, think sure. mecca jordan peterson is going to want to hear about this <laughs> when how do we know what is how does your theories apply to ai essentially right how do we figure out if an AI is sentient at any point, will we be able to, if we can't, are we just going to wait until they have, you know, enough human like behaviors and then assign them rights at that point? Where do you, where do you go on that? Yeah, I don't have a strong view one way or the other. I'd be interested in hearing what you think too. I, I think in general, as with plants, I think that we are probably not there yet. In other words, probably not yet at a point where we we need to start erring on the side of treating them as at least partly sentient. But mm -hmm. I think that we might reach that point soon and that it would be good to start preparing for that now. And, and for that reason, if, if we expect that they will become at least reasonably likely to be sentient given our evidence relatively soon, like within the next couple of decades, for example, mm -hmm. and given, given that the pace of social change is slow, and political change is slow. I think we mm -hmm. do have reason to start laying the groundwork for expanding our moral circle right now, not only by continuing to expand the moral circle by advocating for animal rights, but also by choosing how we talk about even things like animal rights carefully so that we don't, you know, uh, uh, bring, you know, bring new types of bias where we bias everybody in favor of biological beings as opposed to, to artificial beings. So I, so I think mm -hmm. we should, maybe not worry too much about how we treat our Roombas right now, but we, we should start laying the groundwork for people to be uh, willing to, to take the idea of robot rights seriously within the next couple of decades. And, and that might mean, that might mean starting to, to treat them as, as subjects of moral concern before they actually reasonably likely are. Hmm. That's interesting. I, it makes me a little nervous and, it's partly because I, you know, think that we're not we're not getting closer and we don't really have any way to get closer to developing a functional test for mm -hmm. AI sentience. I think that I mean, like yeah. my, my joke about substrate chauvinism aside, I do think you're right that we can reasonably distinguish between a very fancy robot lobster and a normal lobster in that the, the normal lobster evolved along the same biological 
pathways that we evolved to some extent enough so mm-hmm. that like we can reasonably infer that its behavior is involving cognition of a similar kind to ours this is sort of like you know right. how we can know that there's a bat having sentience kind of thing um right. and i don't think that carries over to artificially created entities it doesn't mean that they can't be sentient it means that we can't just jump to inferring and assuming that they are the same way we can make that jump with biological entities that express yeah. these kinds of behaviors yeah no yeah i mean a big part of the problem here is is that for a lot of people our source of evidence that other animals have consciousness is their continuity with humans they mm-hmm. they have various behavioral and functional and evolutionary continuities with humans and you know i can infer that you are conscious because of your similarities with me and then we can infer that you know other primates are conscious because of their similarities with us and so on down the line and and then of course that that uh argument by analogy gets gets thinner and weaker as as you go farther along the phylogenetic tree and Mm -hmm. maybe you know with for example octopuses the behavioral and functional complexity and similarity is enough to to make our credence pretty high even though the evolutionary continuities are pretty weak but when Mm -hmm. it comes to ais for example or aliens you know beings who are very different from all currently living beings on this planet then then that that argument by analogy might not really be available to us except in a really thin sense that there is something like a lot of complexity and apparent agency and that kind of thing um Mm -hmm. but but that's exactly why i think this is permanently going to be a case of the ethics of risk and uncertainty we're never Mm -hmm. going to in principle i think solve the problem of other minds and yet we will have to make important decisions about whether to bring into existence you know uh trillions or quadrillions or quintillions of simulated beings or or whether to upload our own brains <laughs> into simulated spaces or or you know uh whether to to mass produce robots who humans can then be violent towards in various mm-hmm. ways and 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 we're going to make those decisions in in a fairly similar epistemic state to the one we have now so mm-hmm. i think we just have to treat it as a case of of risk and uncertainty and then we have to apply these principles and that means taking seriously the the possibility that they have rights. And if they're agents, they have to think about us in the same way. <laughs> They'll have to make decisions about how to treat us without being able to directly experience our own minds and know if these globs mm-hmm. of meat actually think and feel anything. Now, what would you say to an antinatalist response where it's like, we don't have to do any of this, right? We could just not make AIs that mimic our behavior and then not assign them rights without knowing for sure whether or not they experience pain and suffering. Like, given our uncertainty in this scenario, do we have a moral obligation to not accidentally bring entities that could suffer into the world especially when there's a high risk that they will be introduced they, they will experience a lot of suffering because they will not be viewed as sentient by some people yeah that's a good question and and i guess i i have mixed feelings about it so on one hand i'm in general not an anti-natalist i i think that mm-hmm. pleasure is as important as pain and i think bringing about lives that can be full of pleasure and happiness is as important as not bringing about lives that are full of pain and suffering and and so on and so i think that in principle if we could bring into existence you know quintillions of very happy simulated beings that would be wonderful and if we brought into existence quintillions of of miserable sentient beings that would be horrible Mm. um so i'm not sure if i think we should not bring them into existence at all i mean similar questions of course arise for future generations of humans and future generations of non-humans. So for example, should we pave all of the forests because we're not certain that happiness outweighs suffering in wild animal populations? Well, I'm not sure <laughs> that the answer to that question is yes. And by extension, I'm not sure that that we should take an anti-natalist position in the case of robots either. But there's also a more straightforward answer to your question, which is that I think this is coming whether the ethicists like it or not. Mm. And and so we can argue about whether we ought to, to bring about uh, AIs in certain circumstances, but we should also be discussing how we should treat them in the event that people do bring them about, which I think is likely to happen, whether we like it or not. I do agree that there's an inevitability to this. Um, I do just think, though, that I think we can. I think the antinatalist argument seems more plausible, at least to me, with the sentient AIs than with, like, with human beings, for example. I think you know you can argue about 
you know, we're just a biological entities and so we're going to continue to procreate and that, um, and, and there's sort of a kind of inevitability to the progression of biological species where there isn't like a need for us to create artificial entities. Like we could, we could perfectly well continue without creating sentient AI. We might want to do it, but like, yeah. it, it's not like a, a pressing demand, like the current existence of actual sentient beings or, you know, the likely offspring of those sentient beings are a kind of pressing demand. So I guess there's, I mean, I, I agree with you ultimately that like, just closing the door on technology is generally not a, a functional solution to that technology. Right. But I, I do think there is at least a little bit more to be said about the idea that like, we don't need to accept this as an inevitability. We could, we mm. could choose not to do it. Like we choose not to do cloning. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I think, I think that's fair. Certainly there are relevant differences between bringing into existence a radically new kind of being versus maintaining uh, the existence of, of currently existing beings. I, I, I do think that there are still a lot of similarities across those issues too, but yeah, no, I totally take your point. So, so switching from potential future horrors to currently existing horrors, uh, <laughs> I'm curious how your animal ethics worldview handles questions like, you know, given the current COVID situation, what do you think about testing on animals for the sake of um, achieving a COVID vaccine, especially mm -hmm. if it, you know, it speeds up the process or makes it more reliable or something like that? I think mm -hmm. generally speaking, people who adopt animal rights views are, are, if not always, like you said, they're not always abolitionists. They're usually sort of on the stronger rejecting of those kinds of uh, situations. Do you right. feel, you know, sort of torn on that issue? Yeah, I do feel torn. I, I, you know, and a lot depends on on empirical questions that I might not be the best person to answer. In in general, I think that our standards for ethically acceptable non-human subjects research are far too low, and mm. and the the tests ought to look a lot more like they do in the human subjects research case. So you know, IRBs evaluate proposed research. So in other words, institutional review boards that evaluate mm -hmm. proposed human subjects research are very different than IACUC's uh, animal use and care committees that evaluate proposed non-human subjects research. And, and for, for human subjects research, it would be basically unthinkable to perform harmful, lethal, invasive, non-consensual, non-therapeutic research on mm -hmm. vulnerable human subjects for the sake of other human subjects who are going to be benefiting from the knowledge gained from that research. It would, at this point, for for most of us, be unthinkable to conduct that research. But that kind of research is is just very commonplace on on the non-human mm -hmm. subject side. So in general, I think the standards should be much higher and much closer to what they are in the human case. But with that said, I do think, uh, and and this is where my pluralism gets messy. But but I do think that in cases where you need to to as respectfully as possible sacrifice the few for the sake of the the you know very many then you are morally permitted to 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 do that in, in emergency situations and and that would be true for humans and non-humans though though the details and the specific bar might be different for them and mm -hmm. and you know in principle plausibly covid 19 is such a case but but in practice i'm not convinced that it is i mean if you look at what has actually happened, for example, what you find is that many people have just skipped the animal trials entirely because they were confident enough that there was uh, you know, potential safety and efficacy. And so they moved straight into human trials because there were opportunity costs involved with going through the non-human trials first. Mm. And so a lot of people actually thought it was scientifically best without considering the animals, thought mm. it was scientifically best just to go straight to to the the human trials, and in general, non non human trials, in addition to being ethically problematic, are scientifically problematic too. There are lots of false positives mm -hmm. and negatives for toxicity and efficacy, uh, and lots of opportunity costs because you're doing this kind of research instead of other kinds. So in principle, I'm I'm open to it, but in practice, I think we tend to view non human subjects research as necessary way more often than it is from the appropriate ethical perspective and that if we were looking at this the right kind of way it would be extraordinarily rare when we view it as ethically necessary to uh, impose that kind of harm on non-consenting non-human subjects so you would really heavily lean towards the majority of research being done on consenting human beings even if that sort of affected the pace of research to potentially to some extent you think it wouldn't actually as much 
unconsenting human beings, but there are also emerging technologies. There's computer mm. modeling and other things that we can be doing. And if anything, uh, continuing the the system of non-human subjects research that we have might be slowing down the development of these alternative research tools that hmm. could eventually give us lots of lots of important knowledge. So so I think I do think that we're getting less from it uh, counterfactually than we think we are, and that we'd in many ways be better off if if we weaned ourselves from it and moved on to alternative research methods. But yes, ultimately, if if science progressed a little bit slower and in exchange we weren't harming, I think it's about 115 million non-human animals per year in the US alone in, in research labs. Uh, mm -hmm. I would be willing to make that trade for sure. Of course, if you model the mice into AI mice, then you just have to worry about the rights for the AI <laughs> mice. It's not really, yeah, you just you're moved not wrong it back a step. <laughs> you're, you're not wrong. I, I did not appreciate that that, that uh, connection was coming with, with what we talked about a minute ago, but yeah, you're not wrong. There's um there's a great paper called Killer Robots that basically says in order to get autonomous weapon systems that are sufficiently nuanced enough to be like ethically acceptable to deploy in battlefields, you essentially have to create an AI that's sentient. At which point, it's then unethical to be deploying it in the battlefields. <laughs> that's a that's a good argument. I like that. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Uh, so great. I I think you know I think I. That's really interesting, actually. I didn't know that people had rushed through on the COVID vaccine, and it does sort of raise a kind of question about, like, well, if we can do that for the COVID thing, why why can't we do that for a variety of other things? Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's some some uh, mm -hmm. details that that we might not need to get into. Some of the things that people were were testing on are already used for other purposes, and for that reason, we already had information about their safety. So there there are some mm -hmm. asterisks asterisk like that 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 I should mentioned, but, but it is telling that we jump to non-human subjects research whenever we think it might be at all useful. But then, for example, with COVID-19, when humans are lining up to volunteer for challenge trials, when they're, mm -hmm. when, when they would be administered a, a you know, particular dose of COVID-19 in a safe environment, um, people are highly opposed to that, but, but they're not at all worried about much more harmful forms of research that are completely unnecessary to non-humans. Interesting. I was invited to be in one of those trials for Rutgers, actually. Oh, interesting. In what did, did you get an invite through NYU? Well, uh, no, I, I, I didn't. But I'm curious what you thought about it when you got that invitation. Uh, I thought about it. I, I decided against it um, because uh, my wife um, went through uh, acute myeloid leukemia about five years mm. ago and um, is not immunocompromised anymore. But um it, we're particularly risk averse about anything that could potentially put her back in the hospital so yeah, yeah. To, to stay away from it for that and other reasons yeah my my partner is in the same situation as your wife and so we're mm -hmm. both very risk averse in this household for the same reason yeah it's been it's been tricky it's really puts the zap on your head with the the situation yep um so speaking of actually your house actually there was one question before we run out of time here at the end yeah, that sure. i was curious about i noticed on your website that you have a very dapper looking pupper uh <laughs> named Smokey, who is super yeah. cute we, we we prize philosophy of puppies on this show so excellent um, i was curious to ask you what your feelings are about the ethics of keeping pets and why you think it's ethically acceptable to have Smokey the um adorable <laughs> pupper yeah so Smokey is the best and, you know, like, like any uh, use of animals, pet keeping or adopting companion animals is, is fraught because ultimately they are vulnerable and dependent on you. And, and so you certainly have special obligations of care to them to treat them respectfully and compassionately. But with, with that in mind, I think that, that living with animals is wonderful. And if anything, I think we should be doing it much more. I think that we should, you know, normalize having companion animals even more than we do and them being able to access access spaces even more than they can in in the spirit of building a much more of a multi-species community where humans and non-humans are coexisting in a more harmonious way so i love mm -hmm. the idea of living with animals i think we should do it the the issue of course with with pets and companion animals is that historically they've been mass produced for example in puppy mills uh in mm -hmm. in the same types of situations that farmed animals are bred. And not only is that harmful for the animals involved, but it also produces way more animals than currently humans are able to take care of. 
So mm -hmm. I certainly think that that type of industrial breeding of companion animals and sale of companion animals as commodities should stop. And I think lots of forms of abuse and mistreatment of companion animals should stop. But in principle, I think that having domesticated animals who we can build personal relationships with and, and regard as, as friends and family members is, is wonderful and can bring us closer to non-human animals and can be opportunities to have caring relationships with, with non-human animals. And I think that is terrific. Um, so, so in the case of Smokey, we adopted him. Uh, we, we foster to adopted him in particular. And he has brought a lot of joy to our lives. So we're really happy that we live with him. And yeah. I hope lots of other people can have that experience too. Yeah, we're in the process of trying to adopt a dog right now. It's a little tricky with the current crisis situation, but we finally yeah. are in a, in a house where we feel like we can take care of a dog properly. Now, oh, one other, fantastic. yeah, one other um, factor there that you didn't mention, I'm just curious if it plays into your reasoning at all is what about the environmental impact of pet ownership? So there is an environmental and other types of negative impacts of pet ownership. I mean, they are living beings who need to eat and shit and all of those other things that, that we all do. And so you have to ask yourselves questions like, what are we going to feed them? And what is the harm footprint of that food? And so on and so forth. Um, but but I, I, I think that phasing out the existence of companion animals because of their harm footprint would be a wild priority to have from an environmental <laughs> perspective. I mean, the, the footprint, the carbon footprint of companion animals, especially if they're raised thoughtfully and 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 if you're generally thoughtful as a family, mm -hmm. is pretty low in the grand scheme of things. And it strikes me a little bit like the the type of reasoning people offer when they say, "Well, if if climate change is a problem." then we need to deal with human overpopulation, which means we need to to get all of those low income countries to to stop having more people in them, <laughs> which which is really just a convenient way for you to express some of your prejudices and maintain your own privilege by by, you know, uh, reducing the populations of other beings who other individuals who are uh, mm -hmm. uh, have much lower harm footprints than you do. So, so I'm, I'm pretty skeptical of, Look, of that type of argument. On this show, we believe that Thanos did nothing wrong. That is an important <laughs> principle of our cult. Um, I mean, okay. I, we could have a whole other conversation of, uh, about this, but, but just very briefly, mm -hmm. I have a bone to pick with comic book movies and superhero movies and TV and, and movies because I, basically I think they train an entire generation of people to be deontologists because mm -hmm. all of these characters face pivotal moments where they have to make hard choices about the one versus the many. And then they choose the one and then it all works out for them anyway. And yep. so people constantly get fed this idea that if you choose the one, that makes you a good person. But uh -huh. part of what makes it seem like the right thing to have done is that it ends up saving the many anyway. And so and I, because they're I usually think... up against like the dumbest utilitarian you can right. imagine. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Uh, so anyway, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> We did a we did a whole philosophers in space on the Avengers that was basically a discussion about how it's really just the deontological versus consequentialist divide as laid out right. by people punching each other. Yeah, the, that whole Captain America thing about how mm -hmm. how we don't what, what we don't trade lives. I I wanted to scream. I I liked I liked those movies otherwise, but but I hated mm -hmm. that slogan. Yeah, no, it was you know well he had to be a naive um, person before he could have his dark beardy turn. <laughs> So before we run out of time and I have to get you over to the enlightening round here, let me ask you, are there oh, any God, right. sort of pressing animal ethics issues that you feel like we haven't covered here that you think people should be talking more about? Oh, I'm, yeah. I mean, there are lots. Obviously, we don't have time to talk about them. There are a lot of interesting questions about the ethics of animal advocacy and, and what mm. types of animal advocacy are ethical and effective and what kinds of relationships animal ad advocates uh, should be building with other social movements and in what ways they should be standing in solidarity with other social movements. So those are really good and important questions that I think people should be thinking about more. Um, I'm currently working on a project about animals, pandemics, and climate change. And that focuses not only on how 
for example, animal agriculture and the wildlife trade and deforestation are contributing to pandemics and climate change, but also mm -hmm. how global environmental changes like pandemics and climate change contribute to biodiversity loss and wild animal suffering. And what even from a non-consequentialist perspective, we might owe wild animals in light of our complicity in their suffering in the Anthropocene. So I think mm -hmm. those types of questions are really interesting and important too. Uh, but but you know we don't we don't have time to talk about everything right now. Yeah, I'm sure we're going to get to animal reparations any day here. <laughs> <laughs> it's right on our list right after we fix the oceans. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's going to be fun. And actually, to tie it all back to your bivalves at the beginning, I wonder if how how functional the bivalve option is going to be as the oceans slowly turn poisonous. Yeah. Well, you you know the the big winners of climate change are going to be jellyfish. Mm -hmm. I think uh, apparently jellyfishes are going to fill up the oceans in a world reshaped well. by climate yeah. change. Yeah. Yeah. So so it, you know, and that is one of the the interesting things about climate change when you think about it from a multi species perspective even if climate change is clearly net negative from a human perspective, from a non-human perspective, it will produce winners and losers and mm -hmm. figuring out whether the net benefits outweigh the net harms from, uh, for, for all animals is a lot harder than figuring out whether the, the benefits outweigh the harms for humans. That gets very close to a like slavery is actually good for jellyfish argument, which yeah, um... it's dangerous. But but at the same time, <laughs> you know, I mean, humans represent less than one percent of sentient beings on the planet. So if a change mm -hmm. that is bad for us turns out to be overwhelmingly good for other animals, we should know that and consider it before deciding what to do. As long as the change is even slightly better for dogs than it is for humans, I'm on board with it. That's <laughs> yeah, okay, we can we can compromise on that. Okay, great. So thank you. This has been wonderful. And now I get to torture you because that's how we end our shows. And you seem familiar with that problem already. But for folks <laughs> who are not familiar in the enlightening round, I will give you a list of things and you will tell me, are those things real or not real? Okay, sounds good. Enlightenment comes from within. All right, great. So let's um, let's just check. Is anything real? Uh, no. Oh, that. So wait, nothing is real. Literally, no things. Well, you told me I can't hedge, so I'm just gonna say no. So I shouldn't bother with the whole list of things because none of the things on that list are gonna be real. I'm gonna stick with no. Okay. I think I don't think we've ever actually had someone just outright say that literally nothing is real. Well, I think we've had I, people I, who have responded to all of the things on the list, I think, as not real, but never just outright at the beginning just decided that all of the things were not real. Well, I, I got to tell you what I thought about metaethics earlier in the conversation, so that was a way it's of true. cheating by, like, it's squeezing true. in a little bit of my thinking about this. Well, so really, external world, colors, phenomenal consciousness, none of these, free will. We just talked about phenomenal consciousness for an hour, and you're telling me it's not real, huh? In in a certain sense that you are not allowing me to explain, yeah, the answer is no. <laughs> all right, all right, I will, I will, I will accept your answer. You all do, right, awesome. you you escape the enlightening round by simply deciding that all things are not real. Excellent, thank you. I can I can promise you, you will get massive accolades for this on Twitter. People have been so mad about the realists the past few episodes. So oh, is, is that gonna... true? Oh yeah, absolutely. Anti-realists are super popular. Yeah, I, I mean, we we probably shouldn't talk about this because it's... Well, you've, skipped, you've about... skipped the fight, so you can now do whatever you want. Right. You've, you've escaped the, the lightning round. <laughs> well, I, I, do think, I do think that uh, moral properties are not real in the sense that we talked about before. And I've become persuaded that the arguments for anti-realism in, in the, the moral case do extend pretty far across other other topics of philosophical and scientific concern and i'm not a metaphysician so i've never gotten to the bottom of what i think about this but i've always in the back of my head thought well if i'm an anti-realist in the ethics case in this particular way uh and and if that generalizes then maybe i'm an anti-realist about everything in this way but you know obviously in in all sorts of perfectly ordinary senses of the term lots of things can still exist well, that's actually really interesting because I've often said 
if someone's going to be an anti-realist about morality, I believe that they have to embrace the kind of global anti-realism to be consistent. Um, right. And I just end up going the other direction and being a realist about morality. But I, I appreciate that you are at least backing me up on on the consistency side of that argument. Yeah, I, and I'm not an expert in in this area, but that that's been my impression. I, I I've I've uh, gotten the sense that that implication might be lurking, and so I'm I'm just going ahead and leaning into it. All right. Well, well, for, for providing me with that extra talking point, I will uh, <laughs> let you escape the torture. So awesome. Um, well, Jeff, do you want to let folks know where they can find your materials? Sure. I uh, I'm at Jeff Sebo, J E F F S as in Sam, E B as in boy, O dot uh, net. Uh, so you can find me there, and you can also just Google me at NYU and find me that way. Okay, well, Jeff, thanks for coming on, and thanks for changing the game on the enlightening round. We'll see what, what this <laughs> means pleasure. for future guests. Throwing down the gauntlet, see see how other people <laughs> adapt from here. Raising the bar, I appreciate it. All right, yeah, thank you again for having me on. This is a really fun conversation, and thanks again for doing this podcast. I think it's wonderful. Absolutely, thanks very much. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you, but as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. We've got quite a few new patrons recently, so I'd like to thank Rambo Billy, Matthew Brown, former internet spaceship politician, Jess Abels, Luis Fernando Rodriguez, Nestor Buen, Intellectual Darkwave, Curdy, Rinthrin, uh, and Grant Godso. And as always, thanks to our $20 tier Duke patrons, blacknonbelievers.com, 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 Chad T., Jesse Rabinowitz, and Brenda Goodman, and our newest $20 patron, Patrick. Thank you very much. And most of all, all of the void thanks to our top tier patrons, Dave Maslich, the creepy eyes that stare at me from the void, and our newest top patron, Big Easy Blasphemy. Thank you all so much. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on podcast apps. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod, and if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus book club content. Most of all, and I cannot stress this enough, you are the void, and the void is you. 